Chapter 4, Part 2 of Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography of Theodore Roosevelt, Chapter 4, In Cowboy Land, Part 2. One night there was a heavy storm and all of us who were at the wagons were obliged to turn out hastily to help the night herders. After a while, there was a terrific peal of thunder. The lightning struck right by the herd, and away all the beasts went, heads and horns and tails in the air. For a minute or two, I could make out nothing except the dark forms of the beasts running on every side of me, and I should have been very sorry if my horse had stumbled, for those behind would have trodden me down. Then the herd split, part going to one side, while the other part seemingly kept straight ahead, and I galloped as hard as ever beside them. I was trying to reach the point, the leading animals, in order to turn them, when suddenly there was a tremendous splashing in front. I could dimly make out that the cattle immediately ahead and to one side of me were disappearing, and the next moment the horse and I went off a cut bank into the little Missouri. I bent away back in the saddle, and though the horse almost went down, he just recovered himself and plunging and struggling through water and quicksand, we made the other side. Here I discovered that there was another cowboy with the same part of the herd that I was with, but almost immediately we separated. I galloped hard through a bottom covered with big cottonwood trees, and stopped the part of the herd that I was with, but very soon they broke on me again, and repeated this twice. Finally, toward the morning, the few I had left came to a halt. It had been raining hard for some time, I got off my horse and leaned against the tree, but before long the infernal cattle started on again, and I had to ride after them. Dawn came soon after this, and I was able to make out where I was and head the cattle back, collecting other little bunches as I went. After a while I came on a cowboy on foot, carrying his saddle on his head. He was my companion of the previous night. His horse had gone full speed into a tree and killed itself, the man, however, not being hurt. I could not help them, as I had all I could do to handle the cattle. When I got them to the wagon, most of the other men had already come in, and the riders were just starting on the long circle. One of the men changed my horse for me, while I ate a hasty breakfast, and then we were off for the day's work. As only about half of the night herd had been brought back, the circle riding was particularly heavy, and it was ten hours before we were back at the wagon. We then changed horses again, and worked the whole herd until after sunset finishing just as it grew too dark to do anything more. By this time I had been nearly forty hours in the saddle, changing horses five times, and my clothes had thoroughly dried on me, and I fell asleep as soon as I touched the bedding. Fortunately, some men who had gotten in late in the morning had had their sleep during the daytime, so the rest of us escaped night guard and were not called until four next morning. Nobody ever gets enough sleep on a round trip. The above was the longest number of consecutive hours I ever had to be in the saddle. But, as I have said, I changed horses five times, and it is a great lightning of labor for a rider to have a fresh horse. Once, with Sylvain Ferris, I spent about sixteen hours on one horse, riding seventy or eighty miles. The roundup had reached a place called the Oxbow of the Little Missouri, and we had to ride there, do some work around the cattle, and ride back. Another time I was twenty-four hours on horseback in the company with Merrifield without changing horses. On this occasion we did not travel fast. We had been coming back with the wagon from a hunting trip in the Bighorn Mountains. The team was fagged out, 
and we were tired of walking at a snail's pace beside it. When we reached country that the driver thoroughly knew, we thought it safe to leave him, and we loped in one night across a distance which it took the wagon the three following days to cover. It was a beautiful moonlit night, and the ride was delightful. All day long we had plodded at a walk, weary and hot. At supper time we had rested two or three hours, and the tough little riding horses seemed as fresh as ever. It was in September. As we rode out of the circle of the firelight, the air was cool in our faces. Under the bright moonlight, and then under the starlight, we loped and cantered mile after mile over the high prairie. We passed bands of antelope and herds of long-horned Texas cattle. And at last, just as the first red beams of the sun flamed over the bluffs in front of us, we rode down into the valley of the Little Missouri, where our ranch house stood. I never became a good roper, nor more than an average rider, according to ranch standards. Of course, a man on a ranch has to ride a good many bad horses, and is bound to encounter a certain number of accidents, and of these I had my share, at one time cracking a rib, and on another occasion the point of my shoulder. We were hundreds of miles from a doctor, and each time, as I was on the roundup, I had to get through my work for the next few weeks as best I could, until the injury healed of itself. When I had the opportunity, I broke my own horses, doing it gently and gradually, and spending much time over it, and choosing the horses that seemed gentle to begin with. With these horses I never had any difficulty, but frequently there was neither time nor opportunity to handle our mounts so elaborately. We might get a band of horses, each having been bridled and saddled two or three times, but none of them having been broken beyond the extent implied in this bridling and saddling. Then each of us in succession would choose a horse for his string. I, as the owner of the ranch, being given the first choice on each round, so to speak, first time I was ever on a roundup, Sylvain Ferris, Merrifield, Meyer, and I each chose his string in this fashion. Three or four of the animals I got were not easy to ride. The effort both to ride them and to look as if I were enjoying doing so, on some cool morning when my grinning cowboy friends had gathered round to see whether the high-headed bay could buck the boss off, doubtless was of benefit to me, but lacked much of being enjoyable. The time I smashed my rib I was bucked off on a stone. The time I hurt the point of my shoulder, I was riding a big, sulky horse named Ben Butler, which went over backwards with me. When we got up, it still refused to go anywhere. So, while I sat it, Sylvain Ferris and George Meyer got their ropes on its neck and dragged it a few hundred yards, choking but stubborn, all four feet firmly planted and plowing the ground. When they released the ropes, it lay down and wouldn't get up. The roundup had started, so Sylvain gave me his horse, Baldy which sometimes bucked out, but never went backwards, and he got on the now rear-as-end Ben Butler. To my discomfiture, Ben started quietly beside us, while Sylvain remarked, Well, there's nothing the matter with this horse. He's a plumb gentle horse. Then Ben fell slightly behind, and I heard Sylvain again, That's all right. Come along. Here, you. Go on, you. Ha-ha, fellows. Help me out. He's lying on me. Sure enough, he was and when we dragged Sylvain from under him, the first thing the rescued Sylvain did was to execute a war dance, spurs and all, on the iniquitous Ben. We could do nothing with him that day. Subsequently we got him so that we could ride him, but he never became a nice saddle horse. As with all other forms of work, so, on the roundup, a man of ordinary power, who nevertheless does not shirk things merely because they are disagreeable or irksome, soon earns his place. There were crack riders and ropers who, 
just because they felt such overweening pride in their own prowess, were not really very valuable men. Continually on the circles, a cow or a calf would get into some thick patch of bulberry bush and refuse to come out, or when it was getting late, we would pass some bad lands that would probably not contain cattle, but might, or a steer would turn fighting mad, or a calf grow tired and want to lie down. If in such a case the man steadily persists in doing the unattractive thing, and after two hours of exasperation and harassment, does finally get the cow out, and keep her out of the bulberry bushes, and drives her to the wagon, or finds some animals that have passed by in the fourth or fifth patch of badlands he hunts through, or gets the calf up on his saddle and takes it in anyhow, the foreman soon grows to treat him as having his uses, and as being an asset of worth in the roundup, even though neither a fancy roper nor a fancy rider. When at the Progressive Convention last August, I met George Meyer for the first time in many years, and he recalled to me an incident on one roundup where we happened to be thrown together while driving some cows and calves to camp. When the camp was only just across the river, two of the calves positively refused to go any further. He took one of them in his arms, and after some hazardous maneuvering managed to get on his horse, in spite of the objections of the latter, and rode into the river. My calf was too big for such treatment, so in despair I roped it, intending to drag it over. However, as soon as I roped it, the calf started bouncing and bleeding, and owing to some lack of dexterity on my part, suddenly swung round the rear of the horse, bringing the rope under his tail. Down went the tail tight, and the horse went into figures, as the cowpuncher phrase of the day was. There was a cut bank, about four feet high, on the hither side of the river, and over this the horse bucked. We went into the water with a splash. With pluck, the calf followed, described a parabola in the air, and landed beside us. Fortunately, this took the rope out from under the horse's tail, but left him thoroughly frightened. He could not do much bucking in the stream, for there was one or two places where we had to swim, and the shallows were either sandy or muddy. But across we went, at speed, and the calf made a wake, like Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. On several occasions we had to fight fire. In the geography books of my youth, prairie fires were always portrayed as taking place in long grass, and all living things ran before them. On the northern cattle plains, the grass was never long enough to be a source of danger to man or beast. The fires were nothing like the forest fires in the northern woods, but they destroyed large quantities of feed, and we had to stop them where possible. The process we usually followed was to kill a steer, split it into two lengthwise, and have two riders drag each half-steer, the rope of one running from his saddle horn to the front leg, and that of the other to the hind leg. One of the men would spur his horse over or through the line of fire, and two would then ride forward, dragging the steer, bloody side downward, along the line of flame, men following on foot with slickers or wet horse blankets, to beat out any flickering blaze that was still left. It was exciting work, for the fire and the twitching and the plucking of the ox carcass over the uneven ground maddened the fierce little horses, so that it was necessary to do some riding in order to keep them to their work. After a while, it also became very exhausting, the thirst and fatigue being great as, with parched lips and blackened from head to foot, we toiled at our task. In those years, the Stockmen's Association of Montana was a powerful body. I was the delegate to it from the Little Missouri. The meetings that I attended were held in Miles City, at that time a typical cow town. Stockmen of all kinds attended, including the biggest men in the stock business. 
men like old Conrad Coors, who was and is the finest type of pioneer in all the Rocky Mountain country, and Granville Stewart, who was afterwards appointed minister by Cleveland, I think, to the Argentine, and Hashknife Simpson, a Texan who had brought his cattle, the Hashknife brand, up the trail into our country. He and I grew to be great friends. I can see him now, the first time we met, grinning to me as none too comfortable. I sat a half-broken horse at the edge of a cattle herd we were working. His son, Sloan Simpson, went to Harvard and was one of the first-class men in my regiment and afterwards held my commission as postmaster at Dallas. At the stockmen's meeting in Miles Cities, in addition to the big stockmen, there are always hundreds of cowboys galloping up and down the wide dusty streets at every hour of the day and night. It was a picturesque sight during the three days the meeting lasted. There was always at least one big dance at the hotel. There were a few dress suits, but there was perfect decorum at the dance, and in the square dances most of the men knew the figures far better than I did. With such a crowd in town, sleeping accommodations of any sort were at a premium, and in the hotel there were two men in every bed. On one occasion, I had a roommate whom I never saw, because he always went to bed much later than I did, and I always got up much earlier than he did. On the last day, however, he rose at the same time, and I saw that he was a man I knew named Carter, nicknamed Modesty Carter. He was a stalwart, good-looking fellow, and I was sorry when later I heard that he had been killed in a shooting row. When I went west, the last great Indian wars had just come to an end, but there were still sporadic outbreaks here and there, and occasionally bands of marauding young braves were a menace to outlying and lonely settlements. Many of the white men were themselves lawless and brutal, and prone to commit outrages on the Indians. Unfortunately, each race tended to hold all the members of the other race responsible for the misdeeds of a few, so that the crime of the miscreant, red or white, who committed the original outrage, too often invited retaliation upon entirely innocent people, and this action would in its turn arouse bitter feeling which found vent in still more indiscriminate retaliation. The first year I was on the Little Missouri, some Sioux bucks ran off all the horses of a buffalo hunter's outfit. One of the buffalo hunters tried to get even by stealing the horses of a Cheyenne hunting party, and when pursued, made for a cow camp, with, as a result, a long-range skirmish between the cowboys and the Cheyennes. One of the latter was wounded, but this particular wounded man seemed to have had more sense than the other participants in the chain of wrongdoing, and discriminated among the whites. He came into our camp and had his wound dressed. A year later, I was at a desolate little mud road ranch on the Deadwood Trail. It was kept by a very capable and very forceful woman, with sound ideas of justice and abundantly well able to hold her own. Her husband was a worthless devil, who finally got drunk on some whiskey he obtained from an outfit in Missouri bullwhackers, that is, freighters driving ox wagons. Under the stimulus of the whiskey, he picked a quarrel with his wife and attempted to beat her. She knocked him down with a stove-lid lifter, and the admiring bullwhackers bore him off, leaving the lady in full possession of the ranch. When I visited her, she had a man named Crow Joe working for her, a slab-sided, shifty-eyed person who later, as I heard my foreman explain, skipped the country with a bunch of horses. The mistress of the ranch made first-class buckskin shirts of great durability. The one she made for me, and which I used for years, was used by one of my sons in Arizona a couple of winters ago. I had ridden down into the country 
after some lost horses, and visited the ranch to get her to make me the buckskin shirt in question. There were at the moment three Indians there, Sioux, well-behaved and self-respecting, and she explained to me that they had been resting there, waiting for dinner, and that a white man had come along and tried to run off their horses. The Indians were on the lookout, however, and, running out, they caught the man, but, after retaking their horses and depriving him of his gun, they let him go. I don't see why they let him go, exclaimed my hostess. I don't believe in stealing Indians' horses any more than white folks. So I told them they can go along and hang them. I'd never cheap. Anyway, I won't charge them anything for their dinner, concluded my hostess. She was in advance of the usual morality of the time and place, which drew a sharp line between stealing citizens' horses and stealing horses from the government or the Indians. A fairly decent citizen, Jap Hunt, who long ago met a violent death, exemplified this attitude towards Indians in some remarks I once heard him make. He had started a horse ranch and had quite honestly purchased a number of broken-down horses of different brands with the view of doctoring them and selling them again. About this time there had been much horse-stealing and cattle-killing in our territory and in Montana, and under the direction of some of the big cattle growers, a committee of vigilantes had been organized to take action against the rustlers, as the horse thieves and cattle thieves were called. The vigilantes, or stranglers as they were locally known, did their work thoroughly, but, as always happens with bodies of the kind, toward the end they grew reckless in their actions, paid off private grudges, and hung men on slight provocation. Riding in to Jap Hunt's ranch, they nearly hung him, because he had so many horses of different brands. He was finally let off. He was much upset by the incident, and explained again and again the idea of saying that I was a horse thief. Why, I never stole a horse in my life, leastways from a white man. I don't count Indians or the government, of course. Jap had been reared among men still in the stages of tribal morality, and while they recognized their obligations to one another, both the government and the Indians seemed alien bodies in regard to which the laws of morality did not apply. On the other hand, parties of savage young bucks would treat lonely settlers just as badly, and in addition sometimes murder them. Such a party was generally composed of young fellows burning to distinguish themselves. Some one of their number would have obtained a pass from the Indian agent, allowing him to travel off the reservation, which pass would be flourished whenever their action was questioned by bodies of whites of equal strength. I once had a trifling encounter with such a band. I was making my way along the edge of the Badlands, northward from my lower ranch, and was just crossing the plateau when five Indians rode up over the further rim. The instant they saw me, they whipped out their guns and raced full speed at me, yelling and flogging their horses. I was on a favorite horse, Manitou, who was a wise old fellow, with nerves not to be shaken by anything. I at once leapt off him and stood with my rifle ready. It was possible that the Indians were merely making a bluff and intended no mischief, but I did not like their actions, and I thought it likely that, if I allowed them to get a hold of me, they would at least take my horse and rifle, and possibly kill me. So I waited there until they were a hundred yards off, and then drew a bead on the first. Indians, and, for the matter of that, white men, do not like to ride in on a man who is cool and mean shooting, and, in a twinkling, every man was lying over the side of his horse and all five had turned and were galloping backwards, having altered their course as quickly as so many teal ducks. After this, one of them made the peace sign, with his blanket first, and then as he rode towards me with his open hand. I halted him at a fair distance and asked him what I wanted. 
he exclaimed, How? Me good engine, me good engine, and tried to show me the dirty piece of paper on which his agency pass was written. I told him with sincerity that I was glad that he was a good engine, but he must not come any closer. He then asked for sugar and tobacco. I told him I had none. Another Indian began drifting slowly toward me in spite of my calling out to keep back. So I once more aimed with my rifle, whereupon both Indians slipped to the other side of their horses and galloped off, with oaths that did not credit at least one side of their acquaintance with English. I now mounted and pushed over the plateau to the open prairie. In those days an Indian, although not as good a shot as a white man, was infinitely better crawling under and taking advantage of cover, and the worst thing a white man could do was to get into cover, whereas out in the open, if he kept his head, he had a good chance of standing off even a half a dozen assailants. The Indians accompanied me for a couple of miles. Then I reached the open prairie and resumed my northward ride, not being further molested. In the old days, in the ranch country, we depended upon game for fresh meat. Nobody liked to kill a beef, and although now and then a maverick yearling might be killed on the roundup, most of us looked askance at the deed, because if the practice of beef killing were ever allowed to start, the rustlers, the horse thieves, and cattle thieves would be sure to seize on it as an excuse for general slaughter. Getting meat for the ranch usually devolved upon me. I almost always carried a rifle when I rode, either in a scabbard under my thigh or across the pommel. Often I would pick up a deer or antelope while about my regular work when visiting a line camp or riding after the cattle. At other times I would make a day's trip after them. In the fall we sometimes took a wagon and made a week's hunt, returning with eight or ten deer caucuses, perhaps an elk or a mountain sheep as well. I never became more than a fair hunter, and at times I had the most exasperating experiences, either failing to see game which I ought to have seen, or committing some blunder in the stalk or failing to kill when I fired. Looking back, I am inclined to say that if I had any good quality as a hunter, it was that of perseverance. It is dogged that does it, in hunting as in many other things. Unless in wholly exceptional cases when we are very hungry, I never killed anything but bucks. Occasionally, I made long trips away from the ranch and among the Rocky Mountains with my ranch foreman Merrifield, or in later years with Tazewell Woody, John Willis, or John Goff. We hunted bears, both the black and the grizzly, cougars and wolves, and moose, wapiti, and white goat. On one of these occasions I killed a bison bull, and I also killed a bison bull on the Little Missouri some fifty miles south of my ranch on a trip which Joe Ferris and I took together. It was a rather a rough trip. Each of us carried only his slicker behind him on the saddle, with some flour and bacon done up in it. We met with all kinds of misadventures. Finally one night, when we were sleeping by a slimy little prairie pool where there was not a stick of wood, we had to tie the horses to the horns of our saddles, and then we went to sleep with our heads on the saddles. In the middle of the night, something stampeded the horses, and away they went with the saddles after them. As we jumped to our feet, Joe eyed me with an evident suspicion that I was the Jonah of the party, and said, Oh, Lord, I've never done anything to deserve this. Did you ever do anything to deserve this? End of chapter 4, part 2